Good morning, everyone. Uh, <clears throat> first, thank you for being here. Uh, we'll do the best we can to get through this morning. I'm not on all cylinders, but I never have been. But actually, I'm on fewer this morning than typically I have been in the past. <clears throat> this morning, I think you can see from your notes. I don't look at the notes. Evan puts them together, and if it weren't for Evan, you would never have notes that you could follow. So please make sure if the notes serve you, and help you, please make sure you let Evan May know that this is a real ministry. I send them to him, and then he goes through the whole thing. And then the other part of that is, hopefully he scopes out any error. So if there's any error in the class, it's his fault, not mine. Because he should have known what I was going to say that is not in the notes, right? I mean, he should have known that. Isn't that, isn't that obvious? So this morning... <clears throat> I want to go through with just a whole lot of scripture. And I put together, as best I understand the flow, the trials of Jesus or the Roman trial of Jesus. There's one Jewish trial in three sections, one Roman trial in three sections. All three of, all, both of those come together and they make six. And Andy talked about this when he did the Jewish trials, which are only a few verses in back of this one, but about 17 months of teaching between the two. <clears throat> and he said this, six. There's six altogether sections in these two trials. And what is significant, do you remember, about the number six? It is the number for man. And more specifically, it is the number for fallen man. It is the number constituted for man, constituted in Adam. Okay? Then the number of man constituted in Christ is seven because Adam was created, remember, to live into the continuing seventh day of God. Not that there would not be any more days, next day, seventh, eight, nine, ten, eleven, but that every day after the uh, creation of Adam and Eve was to be a relational day, a day of God and man walking together in the unity that God, for which God has created us. And so that's the Sabbath. That's what that has to do with. That Emmanuel, that God and man come together in fellowship and in unity. And so Jesus comes as the fulfillment. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who fulfills all that the Sabbath spoke about and all that the Sabbath um, had to do in, the, in relationship in the Jewish, uh, you see, I told you we're not with it today. All that the Sabbath had to do. Now, someone better be praying that I can, you know, Holy Spirit, give me a better deal than this way. And so Jesus fulfills all the requirements and he fulfills that Sabbath. He is our Sabbath. So today, as believers, we are living in the eternal Sabbath rest completion of God's work for us in Christ. And so today, as we go into the trial of Jesus before, Rome, before Pilate, we come to the place now where Jesus is going to be willingly accepting and embracing 
that will of God for which he was born into the world. And remember, we talked a little bit about that last week. Some of you have not been here every week. I understand that. I really do. But for goodness sakes, do one thing. Get, what, do you, what do you call it? Go online, uh, YouTubes? Or, uh, how do, what do you call all this that you can get this stuff on our p- pad? Uh, what? App. Get it on the app or however you do it. Get DVDs. I don't know however you need to do that. Because there's just a lot to know and understand about all this. So let's begin. Father, thank you so much for your word. <clears throat> thank you for your presence, Father. Father, no matter how this man says and what he says this morning, every time, no matter how I feel, doesn't matter. It only matters that you move in power, that you move, that you minister, that you teach, that you give revelation, that you do the sanctifying work by your spirit. Father, that's the only thing that matters in this class is the work of your power by your spirit. This is why we're here, Father, to receive the powerful, transforming, revelatory work of your spirit. So we, this morning, just as every other time, we don't depend upon ourselves. We know better. Father, we depend upon you. We depend upon specifically the work of your spirit who makes everything about you known to us without whom, without your spirit, we would always be utterly in the dark. So thank you for that in Jesus name. Amen. So we'll divide the trial, the Roman trial into three sections. I call it first trial, but again, you can say first part of the trial, first trial, however you want to do that. And we're not going to just stay in Matthew because we're going to take what is said in Matthew, Luke, and John. Mark basically says the same thing, so I didn't, I don't think I have any of Mark in here. There's nothing wrong with it. So John 18, 28 to 32. It says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. It just isn't that interesting. They don't want to be defiled because they don't want to what? Get on Gentile territory. I mean, we can't do that. But they're going to give the Messiah into Roman hands. There's just a lot to say. If I do this, we'll never get out of these verses. When you read that, let's not read it being critical of these leaders because that's how it's typically looked at. Look at these guys. And I just said it, didn't I? They're going to be defiled if they step into this Gentile, uncleaned area. We can't do that because we're God's people. And we're separate and we're holy and we live differently. And so we need to do it in a way that we personally are not defiled so that the Messiah can be crucified. (laughs) What ways do we do the same thing in our own lives? You see, as we read these words of the Bible, we don't want to read them just intellectually and moving on and learning something. We want to make sure that we're hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us to say, is there any way... 
are there any areas in your life where you are, quote, not wanting to be defiled by doing, going, saying, or whatever at the cost of my Messiah? We need to be careful about this. So they did not be defiled, so, but, could not, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them. Isn't that a condescension? You know what I mean? Pilate lowered himself to go outside to them. Pilate, this governor, and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have defiled, delivered him over to you. See, they didn't answer the question at that moment. They just sidestepped. That's obfuscation. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We covered that a while back. No stoning was allowed anymore under Roman law. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. By the way, do you remember that when Jesus spoke what kind of death he was going to die? Chapter 3, and I, if I be lifted up. I will draw all men unto myself. Lift it up. Stoning is not being lifted up. It's being down. Now, why did Pilate, why did the priest take Jesus to Pilate? Why do they do this? By the time of Jesus, Rome had been uh, forbidden the Jews to execute, to stone, execute by stoning. That was no longer the law. They were not allowed all these indigenous populations to start killing one another and executing criminals. Rome was in charge now, and so in order for this execution to be carried out, you had to do it Rome's way under their jurisdiction. Therefore, if they were to have Jesus put to death, Rome would have to try them and execute the guilty by crucifixion. So Pilate was not yet heard. He's not yet heard any accusation against these people. And so he's about ready to say, hey, look, just go on out of here. We don't need this. I, I'm not interested in your religious squabbles. Then in Luke 23, 2, this is why putting all these scriptures together makes the one section in Matthew a little more plausible, we understand. So here's a man. He's a religious rabble rouser. You know, he, he thinks he's the son of God or whatever. And, you know, Pilate said, what do I care about that? And so it looks like. Pilate is going to release him. Ah, we don't want to have that done. So Luke 23, 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the king. Ah, when they say that, and they do it purposefully, they got Pilate's attention. Sedition. We have a man here who is claiming to be someone, a ruler, who possibly is going to want to overthrow Caesar. This is seditious. And this is precisely the crux of the issue. This is precisely the crux of the whole issue. The crux of the issue is this. Jesus is a king. And he has come as a king 
to overthrow not the rule of this, the governments of this world, but to overthrow the God of this world. And so when they call him a king, they have actually said it absolutely correctly. Isn't it interesting how the Holy Spirit can give words and terminology and even prophecies, etc., into the mouths of unbelievers and use them as also he uses believers, correct? Never think that God cannot speak through an unbeliever. And so this is precisely the crux of the issue, both for Rome and for spe- especially for Satan. This charge got Pilate's attention. And now he needs to find out what's going on. So Matthew 27, 11, the first part of it. And he turns to Jesus and he says, are you the king of the Jews? Are you a king? They say you're a king. Are you here as a king? Pilate must now determine the accuracy of their charge. He's forced to do this. They have forced his hand. In John 18, 36, Jesus answers in the affirmative by explaining the nature of his kingdom. He said, yes, I'm a king, but let me tell you what kind of a kingdom this is. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And then in verse 37, we read Jesus replied to Pilate's response. So, you are a king. Okay, you're a king then. Right? You're not a king in our sense, but there is a kingdom, correct? You are a king. He's still trying to figure out what in the world are we talking about here? And Jesus says, you say that I am a king. And that's a euphemistic phrase that says, that is kind of an agreement with what Pilate is saying. Jesus is agreeing in this kind of a way. He said, you said it. It's correct. You have said it. I am a king. And for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth, so that everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. How many of us are of the truth this morning? How many of us are of the truth this morning? How do you know you are of the truth? How do you know that you are in Christ? How do you know that? <clears throat> because you walked an aisle one day and you received Christ in a prayer. You did that at Alpha, at home. Someone prayed with you in a restaurant one day. How do you know that you are of the truth? How do we know this? Well, certainly that decision to say yes to Jesus' forgiveness, accepting and embracing the work of God in his son at the cross for forgiveness is certainly the beginning of that. But how do you know that when you said yes to Jesus, you were saying, listen how I'm going to say it, you were saying yes to his yes. You were not saying yes to him to get him to say yes to you. May I say that again? We do not say yes to Jesus to get him to say yes to us. Because then that puts the burden of our salvation and the decision of our salvation where? On us. Do you see it? And where is the burden? Where is the burden of our salvation, the decision? On us or on God? On God. So when I said yes, was my yes in concert and in agreement with God's yes that I am his son? How do you know this? Because you see, we listen to his voice. And when it says listen to his voice, it's just not saying, okay, I hear Jesus, I hear you, I hear you. It's listening with understanding, producing obedience. Yes, the problem with too many believers today is this. 
We listen, and then we go on our own way. Isn't that right? We listen, and then we go on our own way. He says, listen. So l- look at this verse, John ten twenty seven. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, the word know, look at the little word know. What is it in the Greek? Somebody may know that. What is that word know in the Greek? Say it again. Someone said it right. Who said that? Okay, Todd, you said it. Say it loud so they can hear you. Gnosko is a word which has to do with knowledge. But it is not knowledge of just an intellectual type. It is a relational knowledge. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. What do you think they're saying there? Adam and Eve had sex. In other words, it was a word, the Hebrew yada. It is a word which signifies and explains the very most personal and intimate fellowship. Do we see that? That's what that word means. So he said, they, they know me. What does John 17, 3 say? Oh, my heaven. For this is eternal life, that they, Jesus is speaking, speaking to the Father, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What? To know, meaning what? To know relationally. What does 1 Peter one twenty say? That God has, and here's a word that creates a lot of difficulty. For God has foreknown Christ. For meaning prognosco. He knew what? Beforehand. So what does that mean? That Christ has always been known relationally, intimately, by the Father. Correct? Do, do we see that? Do we see that? Do you understand what that word means there? So when we go to Romans 8, 29. For God has predestined us for whom he foreknew. It's the same word, prognosco. He predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Well, what does that mean, foreknown? Does it mean to know what you did, therefore to make a decision upon what God saw that you would do? God, yes, does know what we did. But that knowledge is not a foreknowledge. It's just God's knowledge of everything comprehensively. So when Paul is saying that God has foreknown us, it means that we have been foreknown by God the Father in the same way that the Son has been known by God the Father. It is a relational knowing. It is a decision of God to know us intimately in Christ. It has aspects of knowing something that we do. But the word itself, if you take the word to know and trace it out, yada, in the Old Testament and gnosko in the New Testament, it has to do with a relational 
with the relational aspect, the fellowship. Obviously, it has content of activity in it, but the activity is a result of the relationship, not the other way around. He says, my sheep. Why are they his sheep? Because they know his voice. And how did he ever get to know his voice? Because before the foundation of the world, God determined a people. You see, a lot of folks don't like that. I don't like the idea that God made the choice and people say man should be given the opportunity to make the choice on his own. If that's where you are, you need to take very seriously what the Bible says about our indigenous, sinful, in-birth nature. We won't go into it today, but you need to take those words very carefully. So if you read Romans 5, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10, you have four descriptives. If you read Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses, you have descriptives. You have descriptives all over the New Testament about who we are before we are born again, who we are by nature in Adam. And the bottom line is this. If we leave it up to man, you and I would never be saved. But you see, folks, a lot of times would rather man to make the choice. Man must do it. And if that's the case, then what about all these people who have never heard of Christ? They are lost eternally because they didn't have the opportunity. But you see, if the decision is in God himself, and all of this is a mystery. Would you agree with me on that? If the decision is in God himself, wherever he places his kids and wherever and however and whatever location, whatever he places his people, he guarantees that each one will be saved by his spirit. Amen? I'm so glad God made the decision because left on my own, I, went, I, weren't, I would never have made that decision. We're here today because God called us into the kingdom of God. Abraham, the pre the quintessential example of faith, right, of the Old Testament. What was Abraham doing when God came to him? Was he searching for God? Was he looking? Did he want to know God? Was Paul looking for Jesus and searching, and finally God said, he's searching, therefore I'll save him? Do you see that in him? Do you see that? No. These two men, just as two examples, were going the other way so fast, but God intervened. Amen? So Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 7, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Haran. The God of glory appeared. What does it say about Paul? And Paul on the way to Damascus. Where, where is that in the Bible? Acts what? And Paul on the way to Damascus. Where is that? Chapter 9. And all of a sudden a light and a voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He knew it was Yahweh. 
who are you? I am Jesus. Oh, oh, uh-oh. Paul wasn't searching for Jesus, Chris. This is not prevenient grace where God saw that Paul would say yes to him. Therefore, Paul wasn't searching. God was searching. Amen. I need to get going. So Jesus, we have to see this. Jesus stands before Pilate to be sentenced to death. And he is standing as our representative. And we are in him, in the mind and in the purpose of God, being sentenced to death. As we have been constituted in Adam, that is the sentence of death. And so as Jesus stands there being sentenced to death, we are there also being sentenced to death as to our old nature. Oh, you're following me this morning. We don't want to read the scriptures and just see Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We want to see Jesus as our substitute representative, knowing that the glory of that is not only in Jesus doing it, but that we were in him and God was doing it to us as to our old nature. Amen. What verse did I just quote? We were in him. Oh, my goodness. Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. Somebody can quote it. I have been crucified. I have been crucified what? With Christ. In Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives within me and the life that I now live I live by faith in the son of God who loved me can we right amen we were there so when you read these passages about the crucifixion and you see the horrible horrible suffering and devastation to this man please be aware We were there in him. And except for that, we would suffer like that for eternity. Amen? Amen. Knowing that should enable us by the power of the Spirit. And I need to hear this as much or more than anybody else. My wife would tell you. Knowing that should stop our mouths from complaining from sinning from anything else. Amen? Amen. You see the glory of the, the, the glory of Jesus standing before Pilate is not that Jesus is there and that's the glory of it certainly is. The glory of it is that we are in him. Galatians what did I just say? 220, you know, you have permission to write other scriptures down that are not in your notes. Pilate says he ain't guilty. There's no reason. There's no guilt. Now, the priest, you imagine, what? I mean, this guy's been going all over Galilee. You said Galilee? Yes, we said, you said Galilee. Do you see it in Luke? I mean, um, didn't I just quote from Luke? 
right? Luke 23, 5. He's been all over Galilee. Galilee? And so what does he say? Herod. Herod is in Galilee. Now, we're not going to go into what all that means, but Herod has been the sub-king, if you would, over the Roman rule of that province and some other areas. This is the son of Herod the Great. This is the Herod who had John's head cut off. You know, the one that Jesus calls that fox. You remember him? Herod? I'm sending him to Herod. Let Herod take care of him. Go. So he goes off to Herod. That's the way you get the second trial. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when Pilate learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, where, where, where did Jesus grow up? Nazareth. He's in Herod's jurisdiction. He sent him away to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time for the Passover. And so Herod is going to finally get Jesus. Remember, he's been trying to get him, you know, two or three times and wasn't able to do that. Finally, he gets Jesus. Ah, I'm going to have a chance to see him. And when he gets here, when they bring him before Jesus, I'll pile up. Herod. Herod says, you're Jesus? Jesus says, yep. No. You're Jesus? Now, what do you think he was anticipating? Herod has heard great and mighty stories about this man. But who comes in before him to stand before him? A man who's already been beaten up a little bit. Whose hands have been tied. You're Jesus? This is the one that... Let's see if he can do some tricks for us. So, let's blindfold you. Bam! Slap the mama out of your face. And you tell us who did it. Now, I want to demonstrate something. The power of God's love. And I'm going to do this. So don't you ever think I won't. What man here will stand here and allow me to slap you in the face as hard as I can? As hard as I can. John, you're a big, big guy. You're probably the biggest guy in the room. Would you let me do that? I mean, as hard as I can. Would you let me do that? You want to come up and let me do it? I'll hurt my hand. Well, let me put it this way. We were out one day doing a Mardi Gras thing years ago, and there were some kids out there. I've told this story before. And teenage boys, they were smoking. And I took the cigarette right out of his hand. You see, because he had already been telling me he was afraid to go to hell. And I said, here, let me burn you on the face. What, you crazy, man? You crazy? I said, you just told me you weren't afraid to go to hell. Right, Doc? How many of you would let me burn you with a cigarette then? Look at the power of God's love that is being exercised by Jesus. We miss this, don't we, Herb? Herb. What's your name again? Huh? But what's your last name? And I put them both together. That's exactly what I just did. Herman Albert and then Herb. Okay. You're Herb from now on. Whatever. I just put them both together. I do that kind of thing just to make sure you're awake. 
because I know I'm not awake, but when we read these accounts, we need to read them differently than we have before. And everything they are doing and saying to Jesus and the sentence that is placed upon him at any moment, and we'll see this, he could have stopped it. What kind of love is this? What kind of power is this? This is the love that God has placed in us and by the Spirit is at work in us, transforming us. Listen to how I'm going to say it. Transforming us by his love into people of his love. I've said this before. I hope I get finished today, but whatever. I've said this before. We are so, as believers, works-oriented. The fruit of the Spirit is in Galatians 5, and 23. Remember that? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Period. Love. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Joy is the experience of that fruit. Peace is the effect of that fruit. And patience and kindness and long-suffering all the way to self-control. This is the, exp- the expression of the fruit. But the fruit is what? Love. And so, I am challenged. I need to be more patient. How many of you know that? You need to be more patient. Correct? I need to be more patient. I'm going to try to be more. I need to be more patient. God, make me more patient. You can hang it up. That's the wrong prayer. I don't need to be more patient. I need to experience and express the patience of God's love in me. Amen? My patience, I need to be crucified. I cannot be more patient. Stop asking to be more patient, more kind, more loving, more whatever. Stop it. Because it's works-oriented and it won't work. You see, God did not save us by his love in order to improve my love. Come on in, Jordan. He did this to replace my self-centered love with his own holy, self-exalting love. Amen? had a little discussion with this the other day with somebody else. <clears throat> so the man says to me then, I have been trying to love my wife better. Stop it. Stop it. Don't you wish your husband were here right now, Janet? Is he? Where is he? Oh, there's who? Hey, Julio. What did I just say? I have been trying to do what? Or oh, talk to me. Trying to make what? What did I just say? I forgot. <laughs> say it again. I forgot. What? Trying to love my wife better. It won't work. But once I realize that I am called to submit 
and walk with the Holy Spirit in such a way, allowing him and cooperating with him so that he loves my wife through me. Stop trying to love your wife or to love whatever better. We can't do it. It's works-oriented. We are to love with the love of Christ. Amen? We are to obey, obey with what? The love of God. D- does that help somebody? Do you see how we have it backward? Do you see that? Now, I'll have to talk to this man after a while and find out how God is changing him by his love into his love and transforming his marriage. You see, if I tried to love Gene my way, I, I'm, I'm going to say it this way, that's one hell of a life. It's not going to work. It's break, it breaks down. That's what's wrong with marriages. Each one is trying to whatever. That old nature has been crucified where? In Christ. So that his love, his unique and only the love of God is now in me by the birth of the Spirit. But by the new birth produced by the Spirit. And now sanctification and transformation and being conformed to the image of Christ has to do with the character and the nature of God being manifested in me by his spirit. Not by my doing something better and trying to do the best I can and asking God, oh, you know, do this. I need more of that. I don't need anything except to be transformed by and into the love of God. Amen? That's what my biggest need is. Well, Herod questioned him, didn't get very far, so they sent him back to Pilate. Remember, they kind of beat him up and despised him. Jesus at Herod's place. The third trial. Do you all have these scriptures already printed out? I'm going to ask you to do this. Sit down. And take these scriptures. And I think we did it from John, from Matthew, and from Luke. I think those are the three we put together. Sit down. And look at Jesus on trial. Look at Satan trying, judging the Son of Man. With the hopes of condemning him to death. So that if he's able to do that, he has won the day. I can well imagine when Jesus, quoting from King James, gave up the ghost. And if you King James is in here, you know what that says, gave up the ghost. He surrendered his spirit. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Kenneth Copeland is radically and heretically wrong. Jesus did not descend into hell to be tortured by the enemy. That is absolute heresy. And can you imagine Satan 
standing at the cross. You believe he was there? He was there. He was there. Watching this man die. Drooling. Drooling. More and more excited every moment. (gasps) Come on, come on. The most exciting day of Satan's existence is the day that Jesus has been crucified and then he hears, Satan hears the most wonderful words. It's over. It's finished. And then Jesus dies. Let's have a party. Right? He's dead. He's dead. He's dead. He's dead. Dead, 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 dead. Right? Have you ever thought of this? You never thought of the joy of Satan over the death of Jesus? This is a great day in hell. It's a great day in hell. And so you see, and I'm jumping ahead of myself, but I want to do that. Satan's clock is on his wall. And it's been ticking. January, February, March, 2000 BC, you know, moving up, moving up to this day. And Jesus dies, and now Satan expects his clock, what, to go forward, correct? And all of a sudden, what happens? The clock stops and starts doing what? Starts counting down. Ten. Nine. What are you talking about? Eight. What does it mean? Seven. Wait, wait, hold on. Six. What's going on here? Five. This is something wrong. Four. Three. Somebody help us. Two. What's going to happen? One, zero, and the Son of God as the exalted heavenly man comes forth out of the tomb. And Satan says, oh no, I can't believe it. You see, Satan's clock stopped and started going backward as a countdown. Three days However many hours all that is. And the Jewish counting of days is different than ours, so don't get excited about that. Sit, and I want you to do this. I think, I think the Holy Spirit wants you to do it because we don't put passages like this collectively together. Read the account. Pilate says, what is truth? What's truth, James? There's no such thing as truth. You see, you hear today that this... What do you call it, the new, the new kids today? Generation somebodies or whatever's. I, whatever. I just say the new generation. The young people. They say there's no such thing. What do we call it? No truth. Uh, what do they call that? There's a term that... Relative. relative. Listen, that ain't new. <laughs> That's what Pilate was saying. All these folks think we got a new theology here. We have a new... Philo- I mean, that's... Come on, read your Bible. There's nothing... New under the sun. Nothing. It's just a replay of what has been.
So when you hear this, and people say, I don't believe that, I, I think it's all relative, don't get upset, don't get nervous, don't get excited. Don't worry about how am I going to, what am I going to say, how am I, don't worry about any of that. Jesus says, when you need it, I'll give you the words. So what should you do? How should you reply to that? You speak the truth of the gospel. Because you see, it's only the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of truth who will convict their hearts. So there are too many believers running around. We'll have to figure this out, how to do that. They're, this, they're doing that, and they're thinking this way, and how can I accommodate myself, and how can I, what, what one we need to say. Well, there's things you need, you know, whatever, and God will leave. But the main point is this. Stick to the truth of the gospel. Oh, I don't believe in eternal life. I don't believe that. God says that you're going to die in your sin, and you're going to go to hell. Well, I don't believe in it. Just preach it. Just share it. Continue it. It doesn't matter what you think. This is the truth. Oh, I don't believe that. And trust the Holy Spirit to apply it to the heart of those whom he will save. Amen? Let's chill out and allow God to do his work among us. So read these passages and ask God to give you deeper and larger and wider understanding and revelation and experience into what this most mighty man who ever lived and who ever will live stood before Pilate and the imperial Rome and did nothing to protect himself, but did everything to love his father. See you next week.